our scripture is from Mark chapter 7, verses 31 through 37. This can be found on page 935 on the Blue Bibles under your chair. If you don't have a Bible, please take this one home with you. It's our gift to you. You are not stealing from the church. Please just take it. All right, Mark 7, verse 31 through 37. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged him, the more zealous they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word of the Lord. Um, we're going to be again in Mark chapter 7. My name is Evan Skelton. If you are just now joining us in our service, I am one of the pastors here. And it is a privilege for me to be one of the pastor elders beside Elder and Larry. And uh, we're going to be unpacking, as we have for the last uh, several weeks, and really until next week before we break for the Psalms for the summer in Mark's Gospel. If you would turn there, keep your Bibles open there. Now, Mark's Gospel consistently switches back and forth in its picture of Jesus between Jesus the healer and Jesus the teacher, or Jesus the miracle worker and Jesus the one who proclaimed the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to see today, in a particular uh, miracle of Jesus, a really, really important miracle of Jesus, that actually this teaching ministry and this healing ministry of Jesus are actually inextricably connected. They are, are dependent upon one another. We're going to see that his teaching actually does a great deal of healing. It heals us in the most important sense, but we're going to find, I think, today that his healing actually does quite a bit of teaching. And I hope you're ready to see what this particular healing of Christ has to teach us. And it's going to teach us something, if you can believe it, even more important than the impressive power of Jesus, who met no illness, no affliction that his strength could not overcome. Because, of course, that power comes from God himself. We're actually going to see something actually even, even more than his compassion, as significant as it is, to approach this man and pull him out of the crowd. In fact, I want us to see today, as Jesus relates to this man, how God relates to us and why he relates to us the way that he does, particularly of how this corresponds to Jesus' very important mission, the mission that swept up all that he did, that, that set the tone, set the trajectory, the direction of all that he did in his public ministry, pointing directly to the cross and the empty tomb. Now, as we consider these things, we're going to need to uh, zoom in, if you will, on the encounter itself, zoom out from what the encounter reveals or reminds us of in Scripture, and then zoom forward to what the encounter anticipates. And so we're going to start by looking at the encounter itself. So I hope you keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31, where we find Jesus traveling to the Sea of Galilee. Now, this is a place where he did much of his ministry, but this time it's on, his, on the eastern shore. And he's done a giant horseshoe shape of a travel. Um, we find out uh, when we look at the places that he went here that it's, it's probably a 120-mile journey that Jesus has just been on with his disciples before he comes to a place called the Decapolis, which is in Gentile territory, a place that Jesus had been once before. Only the last time he was there, when he landed on shore, he was run at by a screaming, demon-possessed man. It's like the stuff out of horror movies. And it gets even more scary as Jesus then casts the demon out of the man, or actually demons. It says that he was possessed by a legion of demons, maybe a thousand demons, that went into a herd of pigs. The herd of pigs ran off a cliff, basically, into the water and drowned themselves. This is weird, okay? So this is like the stuff of nightmares. 
But uh, Jesus then leaves. The crowds are begging him, in fact, please leave us, go away. They're terrified by this power that he demonstrates. And Jesus leaves the demon-possessed man who's now sane in his right mind, and importantly with clothes on this time, um, to go and tell everyone of what God had done for him that day. Now, we're not entirely sure at this point, but the fact that Jesus is now surrounded by a crowd in Decapolis indicates that at least this man was marginally successful in his mission. Now, I have to tell you, though, we tend to romanticize crowds. The crowd that's there, we tend to get really excited about. When you read the Gospels, often we we have this picture in our mind of Jesus always being surrounded by people. And for many of us, particularly in our day and age, we, we, uh, this is something many of us are longing for too. You think about how much pressure there is on social media to gain followers or likes, or uh, even you can have a job now of being an influencer. Okay? So you have no one who is more of an influencer in this society than Jesus himself. But when you look at the crowd that surrounds him, not only is Jesus unimpressed by the crowd, the crowd ends up actually not being that great of a thing. Sure, there's lots of energy and enthusiasm, but it doesn't take much for that energy to shift directions and very dramatically. Jesus knows that the crowd who will shout, Hosanna, blessed be, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is soon going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. Certainly, Jesus uh, teaches and heals and will feed crowds, but Jesus seems rather unimpressed by crowds. In fact, truth be told, the people who seem to have the greatest, who have experienced the greatest influence from Christ, who were changed the most dramatically, weren't the crowds, but the individuals within them who he gave direct time and attention to. Individuals like this man who is now brought by presumably many that, he, that love him to Jesus, who is deaf, but not only deaf, but has a fairly severe speech impediment, likely because of some disease or injury, probably wasn't born this way, making the, uh, even the simplest statement for someone like this a, uh, a grueling impossibility. They bring this man, begging Jesus to heal him. And here he stands before Jesus, surrounded by friends, who are looking to see if there might be any hope for their friend. But then Jesus does something really interesting and unexpected. Thinking of the crowds, what does he do? He pulls this man away from the very crowd he's among. And it seems that Jesus is intent with this particular miracle to do this one, at least this one, in private. This isn't the first time either we find Jesus do this, break away from the crowd, perform some of the most significant, even the most... uh, remarkable signs of power, not in public, but in private. Why? What is this showing us about Jesus? Well, I think it has something to show about the kind of care that Jesus gives, the kind of care that God gives to each one of us. And the first is, this care is individual in nature, individual attention. Now, depending on what you think about Jesus' miracles, this individual attention doesn't make a lot of sense. After all, many of us think of Jesus' miracles as something like magic tricks, right? Designed to impress, designed for shock and awe, designed to gain Jesus more influence, more followers, more reputation. If this is the purpose of his miracles, then, then why in the, in the world would Jesus rob himself of such an important opportunity to gain more street cred? But Jesus seems to show, again, very little interest in showing off. For one, no miracle, he knows, seems to convince his opponents anyways, no matter how dramatic. But also because the miracles tend to draw followers for all of the wrong reasons. But even more importantly, I think Jesus shows us here how greatly the individual who comes for this healing matters to him. You know, Jesus doesn't do this supremely for the crowds. He doesn't do it supremely for his own reputation. He doesn't do this to show off. He does this for the man himself, and 
at least one of the purposes of for the privacy, even the makeshift sign language that he does here, has to do with the significance, not of the crowds, but of the man in, needed, in need of help. I mean, isn't it a powerful picture? After all, one of the most distinctive features of Christianity, we have to remind one another, is its claims to a direct and personal love relationship with the creator God. Now, in our day and age, it's common to take this as assumed. When you talk, talk to people about, especially, well, yeah, it doesn't matter if they're Christian or not, a spiritual-minded person, you ask them to, to describe God, and they often describe God or understand God as largely a personal God, a God who has a personal relationship with me. I have to tell you, though, this has not always been the case. This is specifically something that has been unique to Christianity, and perhaps one of the reasons it's become one of the assumptions of our culture is because we have inherited it from Christianity. In the first century, in fact, it was the opposite. Many sought favor from the gods, or in the East sought enlightenment from the divine or the gods. Only Christianity offered an individual, a personal, direct love relationship with that God. And so even while the man may not realize it here, this is what he is encountering, a God who desires to know and to save the person. J. Gresham Machen says, one of the central tenets of Christianity is the worth of the individual soul. It provides for the individual a refuge from all the fluctuating currents of human opinion, a secret place of meditation where a man can come alone into the presence of God. It does give a, courage, a man the courage to stand, if need be, against the world. It resolutely refuses to make of the individual a mere means to an end a mere element in the composition of society. It rejects altogether any means of salvation which deal with men in mass. It brings the individual face to face with his, and we could say her, God. The care of Christ is individual. God cares for the person. And if you are a Christian, it's because God has given individual care and concern to you. You're not just one more face in the crowd. But this is not only what Jesus shows us, is that his care is also imminent. Imminent care. Individual attention and imminent care. Now, this is not a word we use very often, but first let me say the Bible has much to say about the separateness of God. There is God, and then there is all that God made. It's not yin and yang. It's not that we're all a part of God. There is God, and then there's everything else. And he stands over, not under, what he has made in complete and sovereign control. Theologians refer to this as God's transcendence. God's transcendence. And yet, another of the distinctive features of Christianity is what theologians call God's imminence. What does this mean? That God, although standing over not under all of his creation, although he stands distinct and sovereign, this same God draws near to the creatures that he has made. And I think we see that here in this passage. I mean, doesn't the whole thing just feel a bit uncomfortable? Almost like uncomfortably intimate here. He, um, after all, what would you start to do if Jesus, again, he can heal a variety of different ways, but what does he insist on doing? He starts manhandling the guy, grabbing his hands, he starts stretching out his ear, and then he, he it's really gross, it uh, gets spit from his own, he spits in his hand and then puts that spit on the tongue. Okay, right? How would you respond if Jesus started doing this to you? Now, Jesus could, because we know that Jesus, again, is not limited by physical touch, he, uh, in the previous miracle, he, he doesn't even have to be in the same house. He can, with a word, heal from everywhere. His power is unlimited. So why does he do it here? He can, when he can heal from a distance with a word. Well, at least one level, I think we're reminded of the fact that the God of the Bible doesn't simply care from a distance. And this is really important. Because I think many of us, as we think about God, we imagine God to be distant from our lives. And we have so-called periods of dryness. We, we feel like God has removed himself. He's gone far away from us, and he has yet to be found. I mean, this is 
this is how many of us, our deepest fear about God is that he would remove himself from us. And yet we have the exact opposite picture of God in the Bible, that he is a God who draws near. In fact, one of the most important doctrines in the scriptures has to do with the doctrine of the incarnation of Christ. What does this mean? That God draws to his creatures, he approaches them, he comes near them in such a dramatic way that he actually becomes one of them. He takes on human flesh, fully God and fully man, in the person of Jesus Christ. This God is not a God who is removed from you, but God who has, at infinite cost to himself, come near to you. If only the man knew who was touching him now. If you've spent your life wondering if God merely relates to you from a distance, consider the imminence of Christ, who loves you dearly enough to become like you, yet without sin. This is the care and concern that Jesus demonstrated, a care that was individual and imminent. But now I want to zoom out from the encounter itself and consider what it reveals specifically about our shared condition. There's something in the man and his condition that he comes to Jesus with that I think Mark mentions because it reveals something about our own nature as well. Now, do you say this encounter, first and foremost, it involves a very physical miracle in involving the physical healing of physical ears and a physical tongue. Some would look at miracles, something like, something like fables, that these are good stories with just a spiritual significance. No, this is a physical event, according to the Bible, that this healing actually took place, and it demonstrates God's holistic care, not just for what our, not only our spiritual condition, but our physical one as well. God will remake a physical world, okay? So we need to say all of that. This is a physical miracle. This is an actual event meant to reveal something about Jesus, and if this did not take place, then it doesn't, doesn't reveal what it intends to reveal about God's character, okay? So it's not just a metaphor, but nonetheless, I think often in the Gospels, God's, Jesus' miracles take on a metaphorical significance. There is a sign beyond the sign. It gets at something even deeper than what might seem to be on the surface. And I think this miracle tells us something not just about the man's physical deafness and muteness, but a, but a spiritual deafness and muteness, I think, that human beings share. Let's talk about that first condition, spiritual deafness. Now, have, have you ever lost one of your senses? Okay, so I, when I was in college, um, I uh, had one of my ears severely stopped up. Anybody ever had this experience? And um, it was, I, I tried to pretend that everything was okay. I was hanging out with a bunch of friends, and I'm like in the same room, and I'm like trying to turn my head awkwardly so I can hear everybody. But I couldn't, while that was going on, I, it, was, it was amazing how much I couldn't think about anything else other than the pain in my ear and the fact that I couldn't hear out of one of them. It was entirely disorienting. It was as if it dulled, in fact, all my other senses in the process. It absorbed all of my imagination. That I, I, I couldn't do anything. I wasn't present with the people in front of me. It distanced me even from them. It, it made me a mess. Just simply from the loss of one of those senses, in fact, if it would have continued, it would have gotten dangerous. You just think about how important hearing is on a daily basis, how important it is to hear things like uh, heads up or uh, watch out or uh, look out below. I mean, it becomes really dangerous without a sense of hearing. And it's crazy how the loss of even one sense or even an impartial loss of one sense, which is all that I have experienced, disorients us and can put us in danger, let alone the loss of all of them, which actually it goes to how the Bible describes what sin has done to us. One of the effects that sin has had upon us is, is it actually deadens our spiritual senses. It is as if sin has made us deaf, dumb, and blind. I don't mean dumb like stupid. I mean dumb like can't speak. And in doing so, sin disorients us too. It drives us apart from others. It makes us unable not only to perceive God, but to respond to God as he has made us. It dulls us to him and leads us straight into danger. You might be skeptical again about the connection here between this physical deafness and spiritual deafness, but I'm 
convinced from the surrounding context, this is exactly why Mark includes this miracle. Because on either side of this miracle, what is going on? We find a variety of people hearing Jesus speak and yet not hearing him at all. Not just his opponents, but even his disciples. Even from his closest friends. Every time he gives a parable, every time a sign of power, they have to pull Jesus aside and say, hey, can you clue us in on what you're doing here? In fact, two of Jesus' most significant miracles, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the waters of Galilee, you know what comes right after them? After these clear signs that Jesus is no ordinary human being, he even is God himself, right after this, what does it tell us about his disciples? In in chapter 6, verse 52, For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now initially, it would be easy to chalk this sense of confusion and even rejection up to the fact that Jesus just taught very differently than their other teachers. It was difficult to get their bearings to find out what, he, what language he was using, the assumptions he had. Maybe they just need, needed more time. It would be easy to say that, well, they had no formal religious education, these disciples, or very few of them. Maybe they just didn't know enough, hadn't been around him long enough. Maybe that's all that they needed. But the longer that this confusion persists, the more it seems to be about something more than just simple ignorance. It's as if they are spiritually blind and deaf. As if, their, as if their spiritual senses had been deadened. Now, according to the Bible, not only we, do we have physical sight and hearing, it speaks of a kind of spiritual sight and hearing as well. Now, I don't mean by this that some kind of Harry Potter sense, the ability to see into the great beyond, okay? Although, you can see people get really weird with this. Very spiritual people, sometimes often very... Uh, so those who would claim to be Christians as well. Uh, that's not that you uh, have this sense where you can see the angels and demons all around us, or you can hear God's voice in a leaf falling or a parking, parking space opening up. That's not what we're talking about here, okay? I think the Bible means something far less mystical when it gets to this spiritual sense. It has to do with our ability not only to hear God and what he says, but to understand it and believe it. Perhaps you could think of this uh, more as like a condition like dyslexia. Now, some of you might have dyslexia or auditory, auditory processing disorder. In both of these conditions, here's what happens. You get data that comes in through healthy functioning organs, through your eyes or through your ears. All the data is fine. The organs are healthy. And yet, by the time it reaches the brain, something gets scrambled along the way. It gets, it gets, uh, it gets uh, rearranged. It becomes unclear. It gets scrambled, and so what is seen and heard is different than what the brain receives. It's jumbled. And that's a bit what we have here. It's a bit more of what the Bible is getting at. Listen to how Isaiah puts it in uh, chapter 6, which is a passage, an Old Testament prophet, that Jesus and Paul refer to often, particularly this chapter, in making sense of why so few have responded in faith to what Jesus has said, despite the fact that it has been very clear. Verse 9 says, Go and say to this people, speaking of, to Isaiah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Do you see the link here? It's possible to hear God's word, maybe even for your whole life. It is possible even to see God at work and not perceive it, not even to understand it. I often hear people say, if uh, I could just hear God speak to me, if I could just hear him say something clear and direct to me. You know, they look at the Bible and they see God speaking to Abraham and Moses and David and Paul. Now we have to say, again, their lives were reading on fast forward. It's not like this was a daily experience. They just went out on a walk with God every night, okay? When God speaks, it almost disrupts them as it, as it would us. But nonetheless, we read this and they say, man, if God would simply speak to me like he spoke to them, then I'd have no reason to doubt. I'd have concrete assurance. I would know that I really could trust him and I would follow him if God would just speak. But according to the Bible, I think we're not actually being that honest with ourselves. In fact, I think the Bible is more honest than we tend to be. Verse 10 goes on. 
make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. In other words, even the evidence we do have, we don't perceive. Even skywriting would not be enough. Even if, as Jesus will put it later, even if a dead man would show up begging with others to turn and listen, our spiritual senses simply wouldn't perceive it. Unless those spiritual senses can be made to hear and see, not only will we not ever be able to understand, according to this passage, we will never turn and be healed. In this deaf and stuttering man, I think Mark is giving us a picture of the disciples themselves, but not just the disciples, I think he's giving a picture of us. Let me put this a different way. There's a proverb that says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it, okay? I don't know how many parents in this room, including me, have clung to this proverb, praying that it might be true of their kids. And yet I have known many parents who have done everything right. They prayed with their kids. They read their Bible regularly with their kids. They made their faith a key part of their public and their private life, answering their questions with kindness and interest. And yet their kids want nothing to do with Christianity today. I know some of those parents who look at a passage like that one, a proverb like that, and they carry a deep sense of shame over it, wondering, what in the world did I do wrong? But then I know other parents who did nothing right, can I be honest? They were cold and distant, perhaps even abusive. They openly sometimes opposed anything religious. That was the story of my mom. I mean, sorry, not with my mom. I'm sorry, her parents did that with her. Thankfully, my parents were just very much encouraged Christianity in our home. But her parents did not, openly opposing anything religious. And somehow, their children became not only Christians, but courageously and sacrificially follow Christ today. How in the world does that happen? Not so much because of how they were raised, but very much in spite of how they were raised? Does this mean that parenting then is all up for grabs? Then uh, it's basically a shot in the dark that you might as well not care because it's all up to God anyways? I, I don't think so. After all, God uses means, and so often the means that he seems to use is Christian parents. Yet still I'm convinced that even as this is what a child needs most, is active, engaged parents who translate faith into the home. When it comes down to it, only God can provide spiritual hearing. Let me give you another implication of this. When it comes down to it, if you are a Christian, the reason you are a Christian is not finally something you can take credit for. It is not because you are smarter than those around you. Trust me. It's not because you made more right decisions than them or had the right kind of influences. There are plenty of people around you that are smarter than you. If you doubt me, we should probably talk, okay? They may even be more moral than you are. Every time, though, that someone turns in faith to Jesus Christ, it is because God has chosen to provide sight, because God has chosen to provide healing. The spiritual hearing and understanding Jesus commands from us can finally only come by his power. And if I can speak for those two who are not Christians yet, I don't mean any of this actually to be a slight, and it can sound that way. In fact, I think this ends up being very, very practical in your search for the truth. After all, if you really are searching to know the truth and to wrestle with the claims of the gospel, and I know some of you are, you're not yet Christians, you know, the Bible explains your interest in these terms. You don't need to fear God rejecting someone who is honestly, desperately seeking to know him because that desire only comes from God himself. And I don't mean somebody who's simply intrigued by God or interested in Jesus. Plenty of people are. But one who comes and finds in Jesus that he is the 
only Savior and the only Lord, the one who comes with even a great measure of baggage and doubt, and yet comes to that God searching, pleading, asking for the living water that he alone provides. That kind of faith, that kind of desire has its origin in God himself, and at the end, he is the only one who gets credit for it. I don't mean, again, you're going to understand everything you will find out. Again, many Christians, many Christians don't understand what they, all that they find in the scriptures. Some of it they find hard to accept. Some of our lack of understanding is because we haven't spent enough time in the Bible. Or because we come with certain biases that, ca that cause us to neglect, to read past, to not take seriously some of the things that we find there. Or because we have tried to interpret the scriptures on our own, in a vacuum, apart from the community of faith that God has made a part of, apart from a history of Christians that have wrestled with this text, text that it might hold, it hold supreme bearing in their lives. Or because, but because instead, I'm sorry, some of our understanding is, is simply because we have not spent enough time. Not simply because there is a deafening effect upon us, but that may very well be the case. If there is even a hint of interest, again, speaking to those who are not yet Christians, if even one small part of you wishes that this all might be true, let me encourage you to pull on that thread. Begin, as you wrestle through your doubts, begin to even doubt the doubts themselves. But I do have to warn you, if what the Bible has to say about your spiritual sight is true, then even as I would encourage you to keep working with your questions with somebody you can trust, particularly one who takes their faith very seriously, there's only so far that your research can take you. I have sat down with enough non-Christians to wrestle through their questions to see that questions often produce more questions. We never really reach the point in which we say, well, we've worked through the list, we've checked all the boxes, where do I sign on the line? That has just never happened to me. Maybe it's happened to you, but I often find that questions produce more questions. Not to say that we shouldn't chase these, but your search for God is as much spiritual as it is intellectual. A spiritually deaf heart will always find reasons to explain around or ignore the evidence that God does give. So what should you do? Friend, even as you search for the truth, pray. Pray that God might make you receptive to what you find in Jesus, even as you try to comprehend it. Only God can open the ears of the deaf. Now, with all that being said, the man here isn't just deaf, he's also mute, isn't he? And I think this reminds us of one of our spiritual conditions as well, spiritual muteness. What do I mean by spiritual muteness? Exactly. Well, in Mark 7, the author uses a very rare word for his speech condition. And this doesn't stand out to us in the English, but it's very, very rare when it comes in the Greek. A word that is only used in one other context, specifically in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and its translation of Isaiah 35. And I'm convinced that Mark, in using this word, wants us to have in mind this context. This passage comes at the tail end of the first section of Isaiah, prophet Isaiah, which has been very hard. It's been full of a lot of news of judgment, not a lot of mercy. But then the to tone shifts at the very end in this chapter. And in the midst of Israel's despair, Isaiah reassures them, hey, God is coming to save you, nonetheless. And he gives a vision of the kind of world that God is going to bring, where history is going, what rescue will look like and feel like when it comes. And I think the promises that it makes in these verses are the ones that Mark wants us to have in mind, and they are being signaled in Jesus. Verse 5, if you want to go ahead, I have 3 and 4 as well, if you want to go to verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then the lame man shall leap like the deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Now I want to point out two phrases. We could spend our whole morning just on this passage, but we're going to need to move on. First, Isaiah, looking at our passage, speaks of ears of the deaf being opened. Given what Isaiah has already said in his book, this, these deaf people aren't just physically deaf ones. This deafness isn't just physical, it's spiritual as well. We've already considered this. But there's a second phrase here that I want us to notice. It's about the mute. Those who, again, it says, the tongue of the mute. This 
word is the one I'm, I was hinting at before. The only, this is specific only to Mark's account and to Isaiah's, and I think ties them together. And notice it says, not just that the tongue of the mute was loosened, but that the, it doesn't even just say that the, the mute could speak again. What does it say? That the mute would sing for joy. It pictures the mute person singing. Here's why this is so important. It's a picture of passionate worship, which gets at why deafness matters, because deafness doesn't just blind us. I mean, sorry, (laughs) blind us. I'm mixing metaphors here, aren't I? Okay, it doesn't just deaden us to God. It prevents us from responding to God in the right way. Because here's the thing. We not only need God to open our ears, we need to come back to the purpose he has made us for. And what is that purpose, friends? It is worship. We are made for one purpose. We are worshiping beings. The problem is we've spent all of our lives worshiping something else, giving supreme importance to something that can never satisfy and will make us a monster along the way. We are made to worship God, sing joy, sing songs of joy over what is changeless about his character, to sing and tell others what he has done. Picture is passionate worship declaring at the top of one's lungs what is true about God and what is true about what he has done for anyone who would hear it. It is why we sing here in corporate worship, but it's also why we listen to the scriptures. It's why we take them on our lips. It's why we pray. Whether you can sing or not, singing gets at the very purpose of our lives, a life intended to give praise to God and to speak back the truth that he has spoken first. If spiritual deafness, though, keeps us from hearing God, spiritual muteness keeps us from worshiping God. And I think this shows up in two very practical places in our thankfulness, or lack thereof, and in our witness or evangelism. If I'm honest, I'm a bit ashamed at how little of my life I spend praising and thanking God, especially on a daily basis. I mean, I know I should do it. And I'm growing in it. But when I look at what my prayers sound like, what I'm quickest to run to God for, what is it I'm quickest to talk about? Is it about what is true about God, or is it of something I want or need? Not to say that we shouldn't bring our needs to God, but that, uh, uh, in what relationship, in what relationship would that be a mark of health in which you only came to a person asking for things? And yet that's exactly sometimes how our relationship with God sounds like. A lack of thankfulness. A lack of adoration over who God is, over what will never change about him. That he is the source of of all truth, goodness, and beauty. That he is the most desirable thing, the center of all joy. And that he stands separate from us. I am one of his creatures. But then also thankfulness of how he has tangibly shown up for me. And you think about even just the smallest things. When was the last time you praised God for the fact that you have a roof over your head? I can point you to some friends who can't take that as a guarantee tonight. Or when was the last time you praised God that you could go over to the grocery store and not just have one option, but 13,000 options for kinds of bread? How many times do we thank God, even right now, that I have breath in my lungs? I didn't have to think about taking it. That I'm not in a hospital right now. That I'm coherent, that you're actually understanding and hearing the words that I've said. I don't have to communicate these to you in sign language, although some of you may be deaf who are hearing this, right? How often do we take for granted the smallest gifts in life as if they were owed to us by God? But supremely, what is it we should be praising God for if you're a Christian? To never let up on the gas on, but what God has done for you in his son, Jesus Christ. And yet, to be honest, when we look at our lives, how little adoration, how little praise, how little thankfulness there is. In fact, how quick we are to discontentment, to wish I had more, to feel like I was owed it, even to resent God. But it's not the only way. In a day of, again, 
immediate, gratifi immediate gratification. We have trouble slowing our, sl uh, slowing our lives enough to be thankful. But nonetheless, we are also slow to tell others why we are so thankful. To tell others what God has done for us supremely through Christ. I mean, am I the only one who feels, to use the language of our passage, tongue-tied when it comes to sharing my faith? So tied up in insecurity or my own apathy when it comes to actually explaining what is of central importance to me? There are a lot of excuses for why Christians are slow to speak clearly about their faith. We fear we don't know enough. We are afraid of what people might think of us. We are afraid that of getting something wrong. I could give you more and more of these excuses, and it doesn't diminish any of their importance. But I think the fear underneath all of them is far less practical than it is spiritual. It is not so much that I lack qualifications than I lack alertness to the gospel. I'm not as compelled as I want to be, as I should be. It has not loosened my tongue because in some manner or fashion, the, the God, I still am waking up to that good news. There are, a lot, again, a lot of excuses about why Christians are slow to speak clearly about their faith. But I think the problem is far less practical than it actually is spiritual. When it comes to our relationship with God, we are all spiritual stammerers. It's like our mouths are filled with peanut butter. Stuttering our thanks, silent about God's grace, and when we have been made to sing, even though we're made to sing, how little of it we actually do. Anyone else need Jesus to declare over their spiritual tongue, Epphatha, be opened. And the disciples certainly did, as closely as they knew him. They have still yet to say much that is true about him, even though they're his closest friends, let alone confess him as the Lord and Savior that he is. Peter will get close to this in the next chapter, but as we'll look at when we get to that passage later this fall, even his statement reveals how little he understands of what he says. They are as tongue-tied spiritually as this man is physically. Now the good news is that Jesus isn't distant to us in this. That's why we started with what does this say about God's posture towards us, how he relates to us, because if all this is true and it's really that drastic, then we would probably expect that God would remain at an arm's length. He's not. He approaches. He comes near. But we need far more than God's compassion. We need God's creative power, because the only one who can loosen the tongue is the one who first made it. The one who can produce hearing, the only one who can restore hearing, is the one who first made those ears. We need the creator God to recreate us, in a sense, which I think is exactly what Jesus reveals. Notice Jesus' touch here. This is more than just weird. I think Jesus, and stretching the ears and in touching the tongue, it has an image almost of a sculptor, like he is shaping clay. This physical contact reminds us of how God, in his creation of humans, of man, what did he do? that was different than the rest. He speaks a word, but he takes clay. He shapes it, and he breathes into that dirt life. And then he speaks a word, again, that breath that fills that lungs. And like the word that Jesus now speaks to the man to bring him this awakening, this wholeness, this openness. It's as if the creator God is recreating the man in front of him, fixing, restoring what had been broken because of sin. In Jesus' actions here, he unveils the supernatural power of God himself, which knows no limits. A supernatural power which brings life. A supernatural power which does what we cannot. As the God who first made human beings in his image remakes this man. Only the creator God can recreate us. Only the creator God can remake the world. And in Jesus, this is exactly what is hinted at. In the hearing and speaking man, we see a sign of the new creation to come where the deaf hear and the mute speak. Isn't that what the crowds say? In fact, notice the crowd's final assessment. Even as I don't think they have full understanding of what, he say, what he, they say, I think Mark includes the words the way he does with purpose. He has done all things well. Doesn't this remind us again of Genesis 1, if you're familiar with it? Genesis 1, 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. The crowd speaks more than they know, and it's as if worship is beginning to break through. 
a sign of the new creation where even the mute will sing for joy. And yet there's two final things that I think this miracle points to, and they point to the way in which God will restore, the way in which Jesus will bring about hearing and speaking. And for that, we need to zoom forward specifically to Jesus' death. Specifically, I think we can see something of the purpose behind Jesus' death in two unlikely places, in his sigh and in his spit. You ready? Jesus' sigh. I don't know if you noticed this in verse 34, but I find something very, very interesting. It says in verse 34, looking up to heaven, okay, prayer, nothing particularly surprising there, but then he sighed. Why would Jesus sigh? Well, I think some have looked at this and they have said that it's just Jesus preparing himself for the miracle, taking a deep breath so that he can speak. But I think it's actually more than that. After a less than a chapter later, just keep reading in Mark's gospel, and Jesus sighs for a very important reason in chapter 8, verse 12. Do I have this? I'm not sure if I do. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Again, same sigh. Which indicates that the sigh is less a sigh of contentment than it is a groan of frustration. It, it, is, le it is less, ah, uh, than it is, ah. Uh. In chapter 8, Jesus groans in the presence of stubborn unbelief. And I think here, Jesus groans for some very similar reasons. Jesus groans first because of our condition. He sees in this man the effects that sin has had upon the world, that it has had upon the human body, that it has had upon our basic understanding. But I think Jesus also groans because of that very misunderstanding, that even in the face of miracles, people remained confounded and ambivalent. It is why Jesus, I think, tells them to be silent, because he knows that even with this miracle, they're bound to draw the wrong conclusions. And still, I think there is a final reason why he groans, and that is because of what this healing, our healing, the greatest healing, will cost him. You see, this final healing comes by the brokenness of the one who gives it. Instead of being heard, by the ears he made, those ears will remain deaf to his appeal. Instead of being worshipped by the tongues he shaped, those tongues will mock him on the cross as he hung dying. Instead of being regarded, the reverence due the creator God, he will be killed by his own creation. Jesus knows and groans over what it will cost him to bring healing. Which leads, I think, strangely to Jesus's spit. It's really gross. I know, who thought you would have spit in a sermon? But nonetheless, bear with me. Why is it, again, that Jesus spits on his own hands and touches this man's tongue? After all, no one wants to be spit upon. Uh, even in ancient times, this was a sign of disgust. And like other, other bodily fluids, spit was something unclean. It was something considered unclean. And yet, like other bodily fluids, it took on a symbolic significance in the ancient world. It became a sign of all things of life. In fact, spit was a common ingredient among the Gentiles for their healing salves. It was believed to have healing power. No, I'm not going to say that if next time you get a cut, you should spit on it. Okay, so medical students will correct you on that one. Nonetheless, now I think... I don't think actually that Jesus buys into this superstition that spit has a healing power, but I do think he is giving us a picture of how our final restoration would come. Our life comes by sharing his own. Jesus gives a picture of this, if you don't believe me, in communion. Communion, after all, a symbolic act, and what takes place in communion, and we take the bread and we take the juice, in communion, we take, in other words, another symbol 
of another bodily fluid of Christ, even more significant, his own blood, a symbol of his blood, which touches our tongues, communicating the same thing, that our life comes by sharing Jesus's own. This is central to what is meant by the union of Christ in the scriptures, that our life has come not because we have simply figured out a new way to save ourselves, but because Jesus has given us what we did not have in the first place. He has given us spiritual life, his own. He has bound us up with him. The solution to our spiritual deafness and muteness, in other words, cannot come from inside of us. No author, no pastor, no amount of effort or research can give it to you. I don't care how many conferences you've been to, how many Sundays that you have shown up. Rather, the life that we need comes by being united to the life of Christ himself. Only that could bring true healing. Only that can bring true worship. After all, did you notice it's only after Jesus' death that his disciples seem to get it, that they seem to wake up to this fact. Even secular scholars will comment that there is a dramatic shift that takes place between the disciples of the Gospels and the disciples of Acts, the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead. It's almost as if they're two different people. It's as if they, the ones on the other side of the resurrection, can hear for the very first time. It's as if their tongues had finally been released. And those who were stammering all of a sudden become bold. That, and friends, that transforming, life-giving power that we're going to see in the disciples can be yours as well. If you are not a Christian, again, if there's any inkling of interest, any realization that there is truth found in what Jesus says, pull on that thread. Consider what he has to say about your condition, even as it may be hard to hear it. Because even as you may be worse off than you have ever dared to admit in your life, through Christ you have good news of a love that is greater than you have ever dared hope, of a restoration and the promise of true change to restore you to the meaning of your life, true purpose, which is worship of God himself. And if I can speak to the Christians here, I know no power greater than the gospel to make you both greater, grateful, I'm sorry, and bold. I know no power greater than the gospel to make you both grateful and bold. Now, one of the most important priorities I think you can establish, too, if you want to learn a life of worship is to actually be doing worship on a daily and weekly basis. By spending time in the Bible and in prayer, going to God, hearing his word, and confessing what is true. You can't get around that. That is one of the most important priorities a Christian can have is daily worship if you want to begin to experience worship, but also weekly worship. It's why we fight so hard to make this a priority for a Christian gathering with God's people in worship, singing even when you don't feel like it, especially in times of pain and suffering. Of course you don't feel like it, but it's so important to get out of bed and show up because that worship over time begins to make us into true worshipers, but more importantly, the most important priority you have to gain worship, to become a worshiper, is to meditate upon the good news that first saved you, the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you struggle with gratitude, if you struggle with boldness, think upon Christ and what he has done for you. Think upon the fact that you are no longer deaf, and you are no longer mute because of your sin. Even as sin still has somewhat of a hold, it is being broken by his power. And think about what Christ himself has suffered for the sake of your own healing. Pray over your spiritual awareness and responsiveness. Be opened. And think upon him until you find your tongue loosened.